Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The passage that I'm about to read from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is not my primary text. That's okay, we already heard a good sermon on that passage from Ben. But as was the case with my sermon last week, my primary text is the passage that we read together responsibly as our call to worship, Psalm 126. Paul's reflections serve as a backdrop for this sermon. Listen for how he accepts suffering not as a trial to be endured, but as a necessary part of his straining to find and then walk with Jesus and listen for the word of God. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many of you have been worshiping from afar during the pandemic. 
And on this snowed-in Sunday, I'm assuming that we're snowed in, we are taping on Saturday, so I might be sounding pretty foolish right now, but nevertheless, I'm going with it. On this snowed-in Sunday, our entire worshiping community that is used to gathering in this sanctuary to worship God is scattered all over Roanoke, scattered as far away as California, if the Daniel family has joined us again today. We are, for today, a second Presbyterian diaspora. My friend Bruce Stotberger already gave a minute for education, but I'm going to offer another one by teaching you or reminding you what the Jewish diaspora was. Today's second Presbyterian diaspora is nothing compared to the multi-generational diaspora. The Jewish diaspora was the scattering of Jews beyond Israel after the northern half of the kingdom fell to Assyria, and then more significantly for the purposes of my sermon, after the southern half of the kingdom fell to Babylon. The Jews lost their king, their homes, their national identity, and the focus of their faith, the temple in Jerusalem. It was truly a horrible and devastating experience that changed things for everyone forever. They didn't endure just a national defeat. To eliminate any future threat and to crush their national spirit, the Babylonians exiled the Jews to refugee communities all over the vast empire of Babylon. And with the props of Jewish faith and identity kicked out from underneath the people, it seemed a real possibility that Jewish history would end. And Jewish identity and faith would just fade away. So how to explain Psalm 126? How to explain a psalm of praise and thanksgiving that was written for people in exile? This past year, my four-year-old granddaughter, Emery, was taught the long trip rule. That same rule was taught to my daughters when they were Emery's age, and we had to drive the nine hours to get to my parents' home or the 11 hours to get to Millie's parents' home. We couldn't afford the plane tickets. Our girls were on time meeting all the benchmarks of childhood development. They learned to walk right when they were supposed to. They were potty trained right when they were supposed to. They verbalized mama, daddy, and on long trips, are we there yet? Right when you would expect them to. Well, it was misery answering that question all the way from Mississippi to North Carolina. And so we had to reach an agreement. If they would not ask that question, We promised to tell them when we were getting close. And then about 10 miles out, we would announce, we're almost there. And when that announcement was made, time slowed down. You might think that after hours of being trapped in the van that we called the black barge, that that would be a bad thing, that time slowed down. But it wasn't. The last leg of the trip, which we called the were almost there, leg, became a time of excitement and anticipation of the reward of finishing the journey and arriving at a place we loved to see people we loved. We could look for and shout out familiar sights, proving that we were getting close. Approaching Montreat, we would say, we're on that windy road that goes over that high mountain. 
We're getting off the interstate now. It's the exit. We're in Black Mountain. There's the general store. We're going through the Montreat Gate. We're turning on Swanee. And then we're there. Psalm 26 is a we're almost there kind of song. It's one of a series of psalms sung or recited from memory right at the end of a long journey to Jerusalem called the Ascent Psalms. These poems were for that final leg of what was often a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to see Jerusalem, the rebuilt city of David, and to see the rebuilt temple of God. As the pilgrims reach the last leg of a journey that is measured by weeks, if not months, certainly not hours, and as they first see the sights of of that which they have always heard, the cemetery outside Jerusalem, the walls of the city, the dome of the temple, they recite these ascent psalms to channel their excitement and emotions of praise and thanks. Now you might jump to the conclusion that these psalms of praise and thanks are because the exiles think of their lives in Babylon as awful and that they're so glad to be back in God's country. That's what we call Montreat, by the way, my family, God's country. The exile in this way of thinking is this this temporary and terrible It's this terrible temporary, this unwanted detour, this imposed pause on the life of Israel and the life of faith. And then seeing the city on the mount and the temple placed at its highest point, their hearts well up with the hope that maybe soon this awful exile, this this exile will be over and that the diaspora will end. But no, Read the Psalms. That's not the way it is. Now, I know if you've been coming to church for years, we preachers can sometimes make it seem that the experience of the exile was just this one long chapter of destruction, degradation, and disgrace. And it was all that at first. The deportation was as awful as what Syrian, Afghan, and Congolese refugees have been going through recently. The experienced tragedy of exile by the Jews shouldn't be minimalized any more than the experience of war refugees today. But these pilgrims who are coming home, who are coming to Jerusalem, they are generations removed from that deportation. It's not that the pilgrims are ignorant of how awful the exile was. While joy runs deep in Psalm 126, it's not the cheerfulness of simply celebrating a journey's end. We're finally there. It's not the fun but shallow cheerfulness of, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. Now, the pilgrims know very well that when their ancestors were deported out of Israel and into Babylon, that journey was a trail of tears. But here's what they can now say about those tears. Those who sow in tears will reap shouts of joy. They go along weeping and sow their seed. They come home with shouts of joy and bring their sheaves with them. 
Theirs is the joy of a people who have known suffering and pain, who know something about regret and loss and crisis and tragedy. They know what went terribly wrong. But though the primary symbol of their faith, the temple, was destroyed, they found out something. They didn't lose God. Their ancestors didn't lose God. Their ancestors sowed something. They kept their faith. They were determined to do more than survive, but learn and grow from the experience of tears. And their suffering was a productive time because they faced what they had to face, learned what they had to learn, and were driven to a more radical trust in God. We're going to talk about this later in a Lenten sermon series that's called Found in exile, I think that's what it's called. But we're going to talk about this later. But basically, they found this greater connection with Scripture and with worship and and with each other as community in a foreign land. And it led to a deeper and more profound faith than their ancestors had ever known. Seed, the seed of faith, was sown in the weeping. Now they celebrate the tearful sowing of a joyful harvest. They celebrate the gift of the journey of the exile itself, how they have been led from a night of darkness to a brighter day of deeper faith in God. Now for us, this this psalm frames a question. It frames a question for when we find ourselves in challenging or difficult times, to sow or not to sow. Though I'm playing off of Hamlet's question, I do not mean to be frivolous in asking it. The major questions when when facing challenges like getting through a pandemic or facing difficult issues like the legacy of racism in America or a terrible tragedy like the death of a child, it's a question about stewardship. Is one going to be a steward of the challenge? the loss, the pain. Sometimes there are lessons to be learned from what is lost. The prophets made that clear to the exiles. And sometimes terrible things happen because that's the risk of life. The book of Job made that clear to the exiles. But always there is this, for lack of a better term, because it's not completely up to us, but always there is this choice to be made. Am I to find reasons to live forward with hope and faith or not? The glory of the Ascent Psalms is that they cause those who are approaching Jerusalem to look forward and to look up. The Psalms do not forget the past. In fact, they own the past. But they look up at a city and temple on the hill and they declare a faith for the future that comes of having known God in the valley. When one does not give up on the God who does not give up on us, the now familiar saying is proven to be true. The journey is the destination. If what we always long for is to have a home to which we can return, What a joy it is to finally know that no matter where we are in life, we have a home with God. 
Second Presbyterian, Finding Direction by Following Jesus.